As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to position yourself for career success? Master the fundamentals of business with HBX Core, a three-course online program developed by Harvard Business School faculty. Immerse yourself in real-world case studies as you dive into business analytics, economics for managers, and financial accounting. The three courses that Harvard Business School faculty determined were essential to becoming fluent in the languages of business. Boost your resume, grow your network, and advance your career with the HBX Core credential from HBX and Harvard Business School. To learn more, more, visit abouthbx.com slash howstuffworks. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from howstuffworks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. So, Robert, you and I both play video games. We do. We've both been playing Fallout 4. Yeah, I was playing Fallout 4. Now I'm playing uh, XCOM 2. Oh, okay. But both have uh, one huge thing in common, and that is that they both of these games involve soldier characters, essentially, yeah. uh, engaging in sci-fi battles and and then consuming various pharmaceutical products in order to survive the horrors of war, to heal themselves, to avoid going crazy, to go just the right amount of crazy, to overcome the obstacles. My uh, my Fallout 4 character is a big-time drug addict. Like, oh, yeah. major issues with drugs, because I just constantly am, like, putting, uh, what, like, jet and psycho and buff out into my, like, system so that I'm, like, better <laughs> at fights. And, um, and you can combine them in this game. You can, yeah. So he's also, or it's actually a, uh, is my character a she in this one? No, oh, in Fallout 4 I have a male character, but, uh, anyway, yeah, he's constantly brewing up co- uh, concoctions, little <laughs> cocktails of, of stimulant drugs, 
Uh, and then, you know, of course, in Fallout, you eventually get that thing where if you take too many of them, you, you start seeing side effects. So mm-hmm. I, my character is to the point now where he's always carrying around uh, whatever the like detox drug is yes. <laughs> and like <laughs> popping those so that like he can sober up. Yeah, See, my character, she did. She never um, she never had a lot of substance abuse problems in uh, Fallout 4. But I did reach the point where she was having to carry around the uh, the anti addiction medication and just tons of buff out, which is like the the steroid that allows yeah. you to, to carry more items because going out oh, yeah. fighting enemies, having to loot the enemies and then can't move because I'm carrying so much stuff. Uh, have to start using the buff out. Yeah, that's an. Uh, you know what? I've never thought about using buff out to do that before, but that totally makes sense. I usually just turn my companions into pack mules <laughs> and just make them carry everything. Well, uh, so the reason why we're talking about this, this isn't, be- this hasn't become a video game podcast if you're a regular listener, but we are curious about the science of combat drugs Mm -hmm. and where we're at with that in modern day society. And what seems to have sparked this was a recent episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I want to say it's the fifth episode in season three, an episode titled uh, Men Against Fire. Uh, We're not going to go into any spoilers for that episode until perhaps the very end of the episode. And we'll give you fair warning. Uh, But suffice to say, it deals with this topic in in, and I thought a rather uh, rather thought provoking manner. And so we did the research on this. We've got some science on uh, military chemistry to share with you today. The the phrase that I came across that I really like is better warriors through chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a complicated uh, topic, especially in terms of ethics. And I didn't, you know, I guess like in the back of my head, despite the fact that like you and I read science articles on a pretty regular basis, I thought that it was a little more sci-fi than it actually is mm-hmm. like my version of it i was like oh yeah like sure there's got to be a drug that gives you better eyesight right now or something like that you know um and, or, and i think <clears throat> what it's reminding me of is our episode on cyborgs uh-huh and one of the articles for this research did refer to uh the the ways of using drugs on soldiers to make them better warriors as a, a version of cyborgism um, and, and actually this is a good way to lead into, there's a, a 2014 article in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists called the Enhanced Warfighter. And in that they argue that there are four different categories for the potential enhancement of military personnel. And the ones they list are genetic alteration of the human body, which is very controversial, uh, physiological monitoring and a tighter coupling between man and machine pharmaceuticals was what which is what we're mainly going to focus on today and then nutrition and supplementation which we will also talk about today they they end that one uh on that's kind of a, a positive note right like, like the other three are varying levels of creepy uh but then oh well you know they should eat well that's there's nothing intrinsically horrible about that there's, well it turns out and we'll get to this later that there are some issues surrounding uh dietary supplements okay. in the military as well um, but today we're really interested in the pharmaceuticals one. As of 2011, nearly 110,000 active duty army troops, and we're talking about United States troops here because that's where we're based in, uh, they were prescribed with either antidepressants, narcotics, sedatives, antipsychotics, or anti-anxiety drugs. This is eight times the amount that was reported in 2005. I guess you could, some people would just chalk that up to a higher usage of those, uh, medications in society in general. 
Yeah, I think I mean that's one one take you can you can have on it is that certainly we live in a more medicated society. Yeah, but then of course the other side is that like this is war and war has always been a traumatic endeavor. Absolutely. Um, and so the ultimate reason why science is reviewing all of this information is the continual belief that the government and the military must balance long-term health hazards with the drug effects that are designed to reduce a soldier's risk for injury or death. So, of course, you want to make sure that your soldiers survive the experience. But you also want to make sure that in the long term when they get back there, they're healthy both physically and mentally. Right. Um, that you're not subjecting them to something that they didn't sign up for. Yeah, because, uh, you know, we, we turn to these sci-fi examples, but uh, the, a real-life soldier is is not a space marine. It's right. not this, uh, this inhuman individual who goes out and just battles uh, bad guys his or her entire life. And, you know, and it doesn't have a family or other concerns. There are yeah. individuals who who go off into this uh, endeavor and then want to come back or expected to come back and have, if not a completely civilian life, then at least have these these non-warfare uh, modules to their existence. Yeah. Well, one of the articles that I read uh, described it as it might have actually been this atomic scientists one. Um, they said, you know, we need to remember that these are people and not machines. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like you may military officials may treat them like machines, like when they're strategizing war. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, like you said, like they, you eventually want them to be able to return to civilian life and presumably so do they. Yeah. It's not something you have to worry about in XCOM. Uh, right. Exactly. Nor in fallout. There's no real civilian life except for, I don't know, hanging out on the beach with your, uh, <laughs> with your dog. I guess that's a little bit of a civilian life. Yeah, I, I guess you could. The game's open enough that you could carve out a civilian life, but it, you can get married, or, or mm-hmm. I don't know, married isn't the right term. But I have multiple uh, uh, spouses yeah. throughout the wasteland. Oh well, oh, congratulations! Yeah. yeah, my character's polygamous in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in that. Uh, so yeah, uh, let's get into it. Better warriors through chemistry. So for military officials, performance-enhancing drugs are seen as the key to the success of military conflicts. What they're imagining is the ability to keep soldiers fighting for days at a time, without rest, <coughs> and with the ability to perform in ways beyond the level of most of today's enlisted people. Specifically, we're talking about the ability to operate without sleep. That is seen as a game changer for military affairs uh, and it changes the concept of what is referred to in strategy as operational tempo this is beyond dealing with sleep deprivation and ptsd as well there are also hopes that chemistry will allow soldiers to reduce their acclimatization to high altitudes or to being underwater and of course if you're a soldier why wouldn't you take a performance enhancing drug that's going to increase your chance of coming home alive right Um, so there shouldn't be I'd like to stress this, like there shouldn't be like negative value judgments on the soldiers that are doing this, Uh, especially like in some cases we'll find out like it is required of them as part of their military service. But the reason why it's becoming more prevalent is we're moving into this era where more wars are going to be fought using attack aircraft that are flown for really long distances. And as more adversaries develop ballistic missile technology, we are going to attack from further away, right? There will be uh, further back, longer flights, 
And you, you'll find out today, like a lot of what we're going to talk about with stimulant use is, is based around Air Force pilots. Right. Yeah. Long flights, long bomber runs, mm-hmm. historically, that sort of thing. Uh, and so according to ABC News in 2007, the military spent a hundred million dollars a year. That was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's probably, I, I don't know what it's up to now. Couldn't find research on that, but they were spending that much money a year on research to find ways to reduce soldiers need for sleep while retaining their cognitive functions. So that's hugely important to them. Um, so let's segue into this. That is, of course, a major reason to stay alert, to be motivated. But what are the other reasons? Why would you, what are the other reasons you would take uh, various drugs, right? We think about like the, the video game ones. Well, there's like mm-hmm. healing drugs, or st- strong drugs, steroids. Right. Uh, there's ones that slow down time. I don't think we have those in real life yet. Not, not exactly. Um, I, I guess you could say, uh, relative, re- relativistically speaking. Right. But, and then there's those that make you more aggressive as well. I, it, I'm reminded, uh, again, like time and time again of the, the old adage that, that a battle is won, not necessarily by large sweeping advantages, but by a whole lot of small, sometimes petty advantages that are stacked mm. one on top of the other. Yeah. So like every advantage that you can take, you take because it, it all can add up. And, uh, and, and so it's kind of like filling out the character sheet of the average soldier is like, yeah, of course we're going to buff that stat. Right. Of course we're going to buff that stat. If we can buff that stat, we'll buff it because buffing all wow. of these stats improves the, Potential for victory and both small and large victory and, of course, survivability of the soldier. Now, we run into there are additional concerns when you start talking about long term survivability and you start talking about mental health. But we'll get into some of that. Yeah, but I never thought about that before. It is what we're talking about is essentially like the minimaxing of warfare in the Mm -hmm. same way that like people do with video games like World of Warcraft or or tabletop games like D&D or something like that mm-hmm. and like they're they're trying to fine tune uh their warrior so that like it has all of the advantages available to it right yeah all the tools in the toolbox are there uh well uh, outside of being alert and motivated of course being better and stronger and faster right uh the old daft punk song yeah uh that is hugely important yeah so, war for the most part outside of well, even with drone uh, drone use uh, in some uh, cases, I mean, you're still talking about war as a physical exercise. Yeah. So steroid use is up in military personnel. And in 2008, it was 1.9 percent. Uh, in 2002, it was only 0.9 percent. So there seems to be a gradual rise going on there. But let's be clear, the possession of steroids without a doctor's prescription actually counts as a violation of the Uniform Code of Justice. But some soldiers take them anyways to enhance their physical abilities during combat. Again, as I was saying earlier, like if you think that's going to increase your chances of coming home alive, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, so they get them smuggled in mail order packages or they pass them along by American contractors. But officials really can't do a whole lot about this because it apparently would cost hundreds of dollars just to screen each package in person, which is outside of, you know, the, the military's budget. Mm-hmm. The most popular one, and I read this and I thought, wait a minute, that's not a steroid, is five-hour energy, huh. which, you know, you see commercials for all the time. Uh, we, we keep boxes of it here at work. Oh, like, yeah, that's oh, yeah. right. Yeah, we do. Um, get this. The military alone makes 
uh, up $9.2 million of that company's sales. Oh, wow. But then this is even crazier. That's only 1% of their annual sales. I had no idea a five-hour energy drink was that big. Yeah, me, me, me neither. I mean, I know that it is everywhere. Like, literally, yeah. anywhere you can buy something, there's going to be a little uh, a little cube of those uh, tiny bottles. So there's a lot of it being used in the military, but it's also only a fraction of what that company is selling to the world. Huh. I, I think I've maybe had it once. Um, it's just never been appealing to me, but well, it's not supposed to taste appealing, <laughs> right? Well, right, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I have, I've taken them more times than I, uh, than you care to admit, would, would care to admit or even <laughs> count in my head. Um, but uh, you know, that's the thing. It's like sometimes it's like, all right, I can shoot this thing or I cannot shoot this thing. If I shoot this thing, I'm gonna have a momentary scowl on my face, yeah. but maybe have uh, you know a few more hours of energy to devote to this task. Well, and the concern, I and yeah, again, like five hour energy, I just kind of thought of it as being like Red Bull. Mm-hmm. But uh, apparently, the concern is that the drink is actually impairing personnel performance. And it causes soldiers to sleep less, so much so that they're dozing off while they're on duty. So there is a little bit of a problem associated with it. Some soldiers also take over-the-counter diet pills, diuretics, and laxatives. This is what I was talking about, uh, nutritional supplements. So they can meet the military's weight and fitness guidelines. I didn't think about this either. Oh, yeah, that's the whole issue. So uh, a 2003 U.S. Army Research Institute study on non-prescription supplement use found that 90% of Special Forces soldiers used supplements of some sort. So that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, six, uh, Sorry, 76% of support soldiers also use them. And then the big example that popped up here that made it, that highlighted it, tennis player Maria Sharapova, do you remember this when she used a drug uh, during like a tennis? I think it was the Australian Open, maybe. Um, and so she was subsequently banned from this. It's a drug that was developed by the Soviet military during their invasion of Afghanistan oh, so that their huh. soldiers could focus under stress. And it's called meldonium. Uh, it's used to treat heart disease and other chronic conditions pretty much on a regular basis in Russia and Eastern Europe. It's also referred to as mildronate, and it was developed by a guy named Ivars Kelvins when he was studying mechanisms of stress on the human body. Well, so it was used in Afghanistan by Russian soldiers because it helped them with high-altitude oxygen deprivation. Now, to be clear here, Sharapova said the reason why she took it was because she had a family history of diabetes and low magnesium levels. She wasn't even aware that it was illegal outside of Russia. Uh, Calvin's, the guy who invented it, essentially, for his part, he said he doesn't even think that it should qualify as as being something that provides an unfair athletic advantage. Hmm. So there's a lot of little little ways out there from five hour energy drink to these like obscure Russian medications that what, soldiers can take to enhance their performance. It's interesting in looking at both this um, this uh, Russian medication and the use of the five hour energy drinks because we kind of get into this whole uh, like the, the whole placebo effect again and yeah. and. Uh, and it's sort of a, just putting a, a like mild supernatural faith in whatever you're taking. Like, is it actually helping you out? Is it providing right. an athletic advantage? Is it actually, uh, is it actually making uh, uh, an impact on your performance as a soldier, or is it just hurting you when the pendulum swings back the other way? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, an open question. I didn't add this to the notes here, but one of the articles that I was reading, a guy was talking about how when he was at West Point, he was basically doing like an op-ed piece for the New York Times about his experience in the military and the various drugs that came along his way uh, while he was serving. Mm -hmm. And he said it started when he was at West Point and that like everybody uh, was taking Adderall. To help them to just get, be able to take their tests and do the physical, uh, you know, completions of, of their service required there. So yeah, I think it starts early. It seems like it's common, but like you said, I mean, Adderall, five hour energy drinks, like this is stuff people I went to high school with, you know, or were using. We didn't have five hour energy back then. Yeah. It was different stuff, but, uh, you know what I mean? Like it's not like, uh, they're shooting heroin to get through classes. Well, yeah. Like Though, I mean, I mean, Adderall is a, is a prescription medication. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah. pretty potent stuff. It is. Yeah. That, and, and that actually leads us, speaking of heroin, uh, to the, the next reason why a soldier would need drugs to kill pain, obviously. Yeah. Physically, it's like you said, war is a physical, uh, is, is a physical enterprise. Yeah. And it's a fit of physical enterprise in which both sides are trying to hurt and kill the other. Yeah. So there are going to be injuries, and you're going to want to kill the pain in those injuries. So combat medics often prescribe painkillers, and that includes Oxycontin, Vicodin, and morphine. Uh, and in fact, like, on a long-term basis, too. Like, they'll give them, you know, uh, prescriptions that last for a number of days so that they can keep them on their feet. And this has always been a, uh, an issue. Soldiers coming, yeah. coming back from the war effort, having to deal with injuries, having some sort of medication, uh, in, in, in the mix and it becoming a problem. Like, I'm always so, uh, reminded of the, uh, the John Prine song, Sam Stone. You, you no, I don't this? know that. One of the most depressing songs you ever heard. Okay. Uh, with the, about a guy who comes back from the war addicted to morphine. With yeah. The, the chorus, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a wonderful song, but it'll, it'll destroy yourself. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a very real thing. And of course, the military doesn't want an injured soldier to leave the war zone. So they've mm-hmm. designed these pharmaceutical prescriptions so that soldiers stay on their feet. They're they're continually in the war zone unless they're, you know, significantly injured. The downside is, like you said, addiction and medication swapping is real common, too. OK, so what about Soldiers who come back from war and they're dealing with trauma. We've talked about this mm-hmm. a lot on the show before, especially on uh, we have a whole episode out there about using MDMA to help with PTSD. That's right. We also have uh, one of the Tetris episodes that Joe and I did a while back gets into uh, ways that that may be used to help PTSD, uh, as well as our recent dream episodes that mm-hmm. discuss some of the ways that uh, dream management software and dream manipulation uh, could be utilized, as well as other uh, techniques involving the selective deletion of memories. We also have past podcasts that deal with that. Now, there are a few different PTSD medications that are currently in use, and we'll get to those uh, in a bit. But, of course, where is the, the, the post-traumatic stress coming from? It's coming right. from the traumas of war. And, uh, and this gets into another possible area, uh, another possible reason a military might want to augment their soldiers chemically, and that is to make killing easier. Right. Yeah. Now, there's this is not something where there is, uh, you know, this is, this is not a, an area where you see a lot of actual, uh, you know, research popping up for saying like, oh, here, here's something that and certainly nothing where you see the, the military saying, oh, they give this to soldiers to make them uh, <laughs> right, make them uh, more OK with killing. Yeah. But 
a great deal of the of military training is about trying to hone soldiers' performance so that they can kill when it is required of them. Right. Yeah. And then a lot of the problems with PTSD is sort of fixing things afterwards, because one of the the things that's easy to forget, especially as we're you know we're watching movies, we're playing video games, is that is that killing is not easy for the vast majority of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most of us don't have the experience of taking a human life in a combat situation, so we can't even really compare it. We can only compare it to these fictions. But there's actually quite a bit of evidence out there that backs up the notion that we have, as humans, a natural aversion to killing each other, an aversion that is that is present in typical human specimens and must be circumvented in the name of war. And a lot of, ev- of the evidence for this comes from military researchers who have uh, a vested interest in, of course, mapping and breaking those barriers through right. training. Yeah, again, like it comes down to, I, I, I don't know, maybe this is a crass uh, metaphor, but like I'm thinking again about this like minimaxing of a soldier, right? Mm-hmm. And this is like you want to negate the the effects the emotional and psychological effects that would go along with, you know, any quote unquote normal person killing someone else. Yeah. Like I come back to XCOM or, and, and, and XCOM two, where you're, you're moving these soldiers around and yeah, you're becoming attached to, to them, but you don't have to treat them as actual human beings. Yeah. Instead, you, you look at them and you you look at their percentage to hit their aim and their will. Right. Like, yeah. And you're, and you're criticizing some of these characters. Like, why is the, the, why can this one not actually hit any of the enemies? When, why does this one, uh, panic and start shooting at, at random objects just at the drop of a hat? Yeah. Um, but of course, these are all sort of legitimate concerns of taking, uh, taking humans who are not, you know, not not built for this. They have not evolved uh, to engage in this kind of uh, of warfare. So here's the thing I've never thought about before. I wonder if there's a video game out there, like a first person shooter type game that takes PTSD into account. Um, mm-hmm. it, maybe there is, and I'm just not familiar. Could be with something it. in the in the indie realm. Yeah, because certainly the big blockbuster war games are seem to be all about yeah. the, this. Uh, this fantasy world warfare where there's there are no real consequences to killing other individuals. Well, that's so. All right. A little bit about myself here is like with these video games, I personally just don't enjoy playing, uh, especially shooter games that are based on real life scenarios. Yeah, me neither. Um, I got to have some demons or some. Aliens exactly. In there. Yeah. Like make it like throw in some sci fi fantastic elements and I'm, I'm right there. I'll enjoy it. Uh, but as a game, but like. Yeah, like the Call of Duty stuff doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. But then I think of like, well, what if there was Call of Duty colon PTSD, you know, <laughs> and it was just like a sobering a, game. Well, and I guess like I'm not saying this as a joke, but more as like, uh, I guess like a, a way to make people aware of the actual like effects of what's happening to the people in the real world and mm-hmm. acting these events. And and, um, you know, we just listed like all these episodes in which we've talked about ways to help people with PTSD. We've heard from a lot of listeners who have PTSD and have have tried some of these things or have tried other things. It's it's very real affliction for them. So I I guess I just am thinking like, one, I'm glad that it's more out in the open than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And like, we're able to talk about it at least. But I, I, I think I would like to play a game like that, not in the sense of like, you know, uh, enjoying the experience of PTSD, but that it would be like a richer story. Yeah. Cause 
It's 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 sobering when you're playing one of these games like we've been talking about. Like pull up, go into Fallout and pull up your your kill stats for your character. Oh God, yeah. And it's like it's horrifying because like, this character has killed you're a mass over murderer. a thousand people. Yeah, they're a mass murderer. They're they're abhorrent. Like even though this world is is pretty abhorrent, uh, like they're a part of it and they're causing all of this pain and suffering. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Now it. As opposed to real life, where your your ultimately your average um, like kill ratio and uh, and hit ratio is is typically going to be uh, far lower. Yeah. So get into this. This is really interesting to me, and I um I only learned this for the research for this episode, and it's connected to the Black Mirror thing we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. This is this is interesting. A lot of and again, a lot of this comes from military researchers who are trying to 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 figure out how to improve performance of soldiers. Yeah. So soldiers tend to intentionally fire over the enemy's head or to not fire at all. That's mm-hmm. a just speaking broadly about um the more or less modern uh era of combat. I had no idea. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, you have studies of Napoleonic and Civil War fighting that revealed that given individual ability of the men, range, ammo capacity, all that, the number of enemy soldiers hit should have been well over 50%, resulting in a killing rate of hundreds per minute. Mm -hmm. But the hit rate was only one or two per minute. Uh, this high firing phenomenon continued into World War One, and according to David Grossman and Martha Stout in *The Sociopath Next Door*, uh, World War Two fire rates were also low. Historian and U.S. Brigadier General uh, S.L.A. Marshall reported that the firing rate was 15 to 20 percent. So, out of, out of every hundred men engaged in a firefight, only 15 to 20 actually used their weapons. Hmm. In Vietnam, for every enemy soldier killed, more than 50,000 bullets were fired. Wow. So the wow. one of the, the Vietnam was, of course, you know, drugs uh, were yeah. being used more prevalently than in the battlefield. Indeed. Yeah. And it's uh, it really it all it all underlines that like one of the challenges of training soldiers and really one of the inherent you know monstrosities of mm. of warfare and, and, and military uh, is that you have to desensitize soldiers to killing. Right. And like, how do you do that? How, how did how what is the, the possible ethical framework for pulling that off? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and then counting on these individuals to reintegrate into society. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we can take a look at some historical uses of drugs in warfare uh, and whether or not those provided an opportunity for those soldiers to come back into society. Hey everybody, it's getting to be that time of the year where your to-do list is going to seem like it is out of control. There is a lot to do, and let's face it, not that much time. But there is one thing that you can check off your to-do list, and that is going to the post office thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale, and it automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package or any class of mail. You will never waste valuable time going to the post office again. Just do everything right from your desk with Stamps.com. Print the postage you need, put it on your letter or package, then just hand it to your mail carrier and doop! 
You are done. You know, folks here in the How Stuff Works offices uh, use stamps.com to send out uh, correspondence, odd bits of merchandise, that sort of thing. And right now, we want you to try it out as well. Sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF, that's S-T-U-F-F, for this special offer. You get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's stamps.com, enter STUFF, and start mailing things. All right, we're back. All right, so uh, we've done an episode before on Aconite, also known as Wolfsbane. Mm-hmm. And we talked in that episode about how there were legends of berserker warriors that would uh, rub Aconite on their lips before they would enter enter battle, which, you know, if you've listened to that episode, Aconite's extremely poisonous. Uh-huh. But it would, like you know, make their mouths foam, uh, and they were basically going to like a death berserker rage. Yeah. Making them more effective warriors in combat or at least scarier. Yeah. I mean, you, you see examples of, um, of so-called berserkers in, uh, well, you see it in, in the Iliad. There are accounts of, uh, berserking American soldiers. Hmm. Um, there's a, there's a, a book by a psychiatrist Jonathan Shea titled Achilles in Vietnam. And he says, quote, berserking American soldiers invariably shed their helmets, uh, and their flak jackets. They had no other armor. As one veteran said, got rid of my helmet, got rid of my flak jacket. All I wanted to do was kill. Um, that being said, the, 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 when we think of berserkers, we tend to think of the, the Vikings. We think of the Norsemen. Right. Um, this is the, the, the classic idea, the classic notion of the berserker warrior. So our modern conception of Vikings is often a bit confused. They're, they're, they were far more fascinating and intricate, uh, uh, culture and people than we, we often give credit to. I feel, feel yeah. like maybe in recent times it's gotten better. There's that Viking show that I think has a little more nuance to it. You know, I was just thinking about that. I have never watched that Viking show. Mm-hmm. Um, but like one of the things that's creeping up in the back of my head while we're talking about this, and maybe you, the listener, experiencing this too, is I keep thinking about like all of the various forms of entertainment that we engage in that are about warfare, not just yeah. video games, but television, movies, yeah. whatever. It, we keep coming back to it. We're hooked on it. Yeah. Uh, and Vikings hit me. Game of Thrones hit mm-hmm. me. Like, even though that's this big fantasy, uh, I'll watch a game, game of Thrones and they have those like big siege battles. Like what was the one they had like a huge one recently, uh, battle of the bastards. That was what it was called. And people went nuts for mm-hmm. it the next day. Like, Oh my God, that was the best ever, you know, and those were not soldiers who were, uh, shooting over each other's heads. Right. It was just this gory yeah. blood fest. Um, so anyways, the Viking thing, Brought to mind, there's a comic book actually that I really recommend called Northlanders, yeah. and it's written by Brian Wood, drawn by a variety of artists. But it, it, it's an anthology book about Viking culture, and it kind of hops back and forth through different eras of Vikings in time, showing you what it was actually like. It's like heavily, heavily researched stuff. Oh, cool. Uh, and I think it's a much more nuanced look than some of the stuff we're seeing. Yeah, because if you look back and you read some of the old Viking sagas, like these are intricate stories with nuance and political intrigue. Yeah. You know, it's not just a bunch of uh, barbarians running all, all over the place uh, because you had on top of all that, you, this was a globe. They had globe spanning travel and trade. They had culture. They had literature. Um, and, and perhaps we can 
you know, attribute some of this to a, you know, a, a rather outstanding and savage example of their war efforts. Not the typical Viking warrior, but this special class of soldier known as the berserker. Mm. So a berserker or a berserk, these were, uh, again, Norse warriors. They were sworn to Odin, and but they believed themselves protected by the god Odin in battle. They engaged in pre-battle rituals that allowed them to enter into a, a frenzied state of uh, supposed uh, invulnerabilities. And they were able to, to disregard pain and wounds, and they served as shock troops. Mm-hmm. So these would be these would not be your core uh, soldiers. These would be the, the guys that ran in first. They were, they were unpredictable, that threw off your enemy, and then came in the more dedicated uh, troops. It's been theorized, well, to get to the drug angle here, yeah. theor- there are a few different theories about what actually is going on with berserkers. So one is that they utilized a mix of mead, so you had alcohol, okay. and psychoactive hallucinogenic mushrooms, uh, mm. particularly the hallucinogenic fly agaric mushroom is a popular choice among uh, those who try and figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, others, however, have theorized that this was was more of a just a social exercise, not unlike the self-induced group stimuli of a of a sports team, you know, getting ramped sure. up, uh, amped up in the locker room. OK. Um, also, you know, it, it could have been just the the mead that they were drinking. Uh, that's another possibility as well. But um, but it's yeah, it's interesting to try and piece together exactly what was going on here, because it was said that no iron could hurt them, that they charged and nothing could withstand them. Again, they were unpredictable. They'd howl. They'd bite their shields. Um, they wore only wolf skins and were sometimes known to fight with a blade in each hand without care for life. The wolf skin is another uh, another possibility is that mm-hmm. a lot of this could have been sort of to. Not not only amping up, but a an animistic ritual where right. they start to believe themselves to be more more beasts. We than talked human. about that in the uh, Wolfsbane episode. Yeah, that, there, that that was part of it. That the the association with werewolves. Yeah. Now it's it's often said that uh, that the berserker might attack friend as well as foe because they couldn't tell them apart, and therefore they were both admired and despised because they only fulfilled half the Viking ethos. They were they they were brave certainly, but they weren't completely loyal to their fellow Norsemen. Like they couldn't be counted on in the same way you're supposed to be able to fight to count on your uh, your 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 Viking your fellow Viking warrior. Right. They weren't wingmen. Right. Okay. Now, uh, another aspect here that's interesting to think of in light of uh, possible um, um, psychoactive drugs is that allegedly they wouldn't remember the battle afterwards and were plagued uh, by a terrible fatigue in the days that followed Mm -hmm. combat. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also there's another interesting theory, and this comes uh, from the, the work of Jonathan Shea, the psychiatrist that I mentioned earlier, and that's that berserkers uh, exhibited PTSD. That even in which is interesting because we think back on on Vikings and medieval war and it's easy to dismiss it all and think oh well just everyone was just totally okay with the horrors of combat yeah. killing a bunch of people no big deal uh, but uh, Shea argues that you know what what are we looking at here we're looking at states of hyper arousal following depression inactivity emotional deadness and vulnerability to explosive rage mm. um mm-hmm. and uh, his argument is that you know we could be seeing some form of that here so it sounds like it was a combination of uh organic chemistry and psychological uh i guess like communal like a communal experience psychologically that amped up the their adrenaline yeah. that's what i would assume is like why they were able to ignore blows and things like that was like they were so 
full of adrenaline that they just kept going. Yeah, I mean, you hear you hear accounts of of athletes where they they have an injury and they're right. able to keep going just because they're all they're all amped up. You know, the um, it's only afterwards they realize, oh wow, I really injured myself out mm-hmm. there, and maybe I shouldn't have kept going. That sort of thing. So there's that possibility. Um, now on the the, the psychoactive uh, properties here, I, I've always wondered about that. Like, like what is the is there really a combat advantage to being high on mushrooms in battle? It seems like right. that would ultimately be more of a detriment. So you and I were sort of talking about this the other day, and I thought about it a little bit more as we were doing the research. I'd love to hear from the listeners on this because clearly I'm not an expert, but based on what we've talked about. Uh, especially about treating MDMA, right? Seems like the benefit of psychoactive, uh, drugs is, is that it puts you into a state that makes therapy easier. Mm-hmm. And in, in this case, like in the MDMA case, it makes it easier to treat PTSD. But I wonder if there's an opposite manner in which you're, you become more trusting, you lose fear, and subsequently maybe you're more suggestible to being a better warrior. Maybe. Yeah. It's just, I, I guess I, I'm just so used to a, the more sort of hippy dippy yeah. interpretation yeah. of um, hallucinogenics, as well as having read plenty of these accounts about say the use of psilocybin and treating uh, sure. various emotional uh, and psychological problems. It just seems like it, it, it's hard for me to, to think about the, the reverse of that and see how it would be helpful that yeah. they're taking this magical yeah. property, unless it's just part of, Believing one is magical, it helps if you have a slightly tweaked like a skewed, view uh, of reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the other possibility, too, is that it doesn't matter what the uh, the, the fungus was because you're mixing it with mead. And we right. do see plenty of examples of people drinking to get themselves ready for violence, getting to ready for combat of some uh, form as well. Mm-hmm. Um the uh, in fact we have this term uh, Dutch courage. Have you ever come come across this? Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a new one. I'm from Boston. Oh, okay, so, <laughs> so that's everybody the, the talks about it. Dutch courage. In oh, Boston. okay, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, apparently, this kind of, this is uh, reputed to have come from the Thirty Years' War of the 17th century. Oh, is that right? English soldiers depended on Dutch gin to stay warm and to calm themselves before battle. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've unfortunately heard it a, a few too many times before people got into fights. Yeah. Huh. Uh, now, another one, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but in our marijuana episodes, we mentioned the whole hashish assassin thing. Uh, and this was the idea that you had. This is Hassan Asaba again, right? That whole uh, mythology slash history. Yeah, this is the idea that you had a you had a sect of uh, Islamic warriors right. fighting against the Crusaders who engaged in ritual use of hashish uh, before going into battle, mm-hmm. um, which again sounds like yeah. the opposite. Yeah, it does. And and by all account, like there doesn't seem to be any real data to back that up. The idea that the the dreaded uh, um, uh, Hashassin warriors uh, imbued in hashish. Uh, seems to have come just from the Crusaders, and they had a vested interest in uh, downplaying Muslim bravery, you know, mm-hmm. and saying, "Oh, well, of course, they're they, these guys were were good good in combat. They had some sort of you know dark secret, uh, some sort of help from uh, uh, from nefarious uh, chemicals to pull it off." Yeah, huh? And of course, that that kind of demonization of marijuana, as we discussed, you would see that used later on uh, in in the United States. Just you know, this reefer madness interpretation of oh, people are smoking dope and they're just going crazy with violence. Assassins, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because really, it's it's hard to imagine somebody far from the yeah. yeah. Unless one was 
I guess taking it to sort of ease it's pre-battle like tension. Yeah, but, right. It's like a tranquilizer desensitization. I guess. Um, I'd love. I'd love. Maybe we should do like an episode just on that mythology. Yeah. And, the, and well, and we've certainly done our our marijuana episode, mm-hmm. but um, I would be curious to see if there's any research out there about the effects of it in terms of aggression. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that would be a worthy deep dive, I think. Now, um, let's move on, though, into uh, those we've been talking about, you know, chemicals that might somehow make you like a little crazier in combat or more uh, efficient in combat. Uh, yeah. But really, one of the uh, we keep coming back to one of the big calls uh, that one of the big demands uh, in, in the military is to simply keep everybody awake, keep everybody focused uh, and yeah. doing their job. And I guess in that sense, like, you know, squeeze more blood out of the stone. It is it is very much the focus. Like I said earlier, you know, uh, the amount of money that the uh, Department of Defense spends on just this is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, in one of the New York Times articles that uh, we looked at for research on this, the author researched documents in 2010 by going through the Freedom of Information Act. They found that the Department of Defense's health care services have written Ritalin and Adderall prescriptions for active duty service members uh, and that these there was an increase in these by a thousand percent in five years. Uh, So from 2005 to 2010, it went up a thousand percent. It originally was only 3000 service members. And then in 2010, it was up to 32000 service members. Um, A spokesman attributed this is a military spokesman attributed this sharp rise to the increased recognition and diagnosis of ADHD by medical providers, which you say, well, that might be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And while that's true. The author notes, most of those diagnoses, though, are in children and adolescents. So is the military using stimulants to keep troops alert and awake? They definitely are. We know they are. There's lots of evidence. But let's go through it, Uh, starting with a historical example, which I understand – Coffee was apparently uh, prevalent yeah. in the Civil War. So, well, coffee, of course, is is gonna. It remains prevalent. I it's use it pretty to get much ready for battle. Yeah, every pretty day. much any military encounter that you're talking about, and really, like so many people's lives, like yeah. like coffee's the thing that wakes you up, keeps you focused, gives you that second, third, maybe even fourth wind right. yeah. um, until you just you know you can't think straight anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, because after all, coffee is a psychoactive drug. Caffeine is a psychoactive drug. Uh, and, de- you know, despite the fact that it's everywhere and it's just we're totally used to it, it is a central nervous system stimulant. Um, it's and, and if you're a coffee drinker like like us, you can attest to its uh, the, the powerful encouragement and stamina that comes with a strong cup of joe. Yeah. Yeah. In fact. Uh, all right. Maybe this is a bit of a side tangent, but I understand that you tried for a while. What's that thing called? Bullet coffee? Oh, yeah, the, the bulletproof coffee? Bulletproof with, uh, coffee. With the butter in it? Yeah. Yeah. How'd that go? Um, I mean, it went well for me. I'm not going to, I'm, uh, that's a whole separate podcast, I think, to get yeah. into like okay. the, the, the claims made by, uh, people who, um, who are, who push that, uh, that yeah. style of coffee, uh, versus what the research has to say about it. Okay. My experience with it was positive in that it, uh, it was kind of like having a, 
you know, a, a full meal oh, in your okay. cup of coffee. Yeah. And then you, then I wasn't like snacky. But as for any additional or certainly sort of supernatural, uh, powers gained from it, uh, I would say those were not there. Okay. Uh, and then we ended up just sort of phasing back into using just our normal coffee and smoothie practice in the mornings. Okay. But, uh, but, but, but still, it, it kind of comes back to like, if it was, if it was successful, it's really because that coffee was great. It's really because the coffee is, uh, huh. uh, is this powerful psychoactive stimulant. Yeah, and I imagine putting butter in your coffee probably tastes good too. It does. Like yeah. some people are like, ooh, what would that taste like? It tastes great. It's tastes like a awesome. really, it's yeah. a really rich, uh, Add butter to anything. It tastes great. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be surprised <laughs> when butter makes something taste good. Uh, but in terms of like, Caffeine's effects on troops. You can, you have yeah. to kind of go back to a time when caffeine was was used by everybody, but maybe was in short supply, or supply was uncertain, or in some state of flux. And that's what we find if we look at the Civil War, the American Civil War. So, uh, author John Grinspan has a, a wonderful New York Times article titled "How Coffee Fueled the Civil War." Uh, it was published in 2014. It's still out there. It's a great read. It paints, paints a fascinating picture of caffeine consumption during that conflict. So, as it turns out, the the Union Army absolutely depended on coffee. It was their their nerve tonic. It was their sustainer. Soldiers attributed it to their survival, their drive, and their ability to carry on. Uh, there's a there was even a general general. Benjamin Butler, he uh, considered it a decisive uh, strategic factor. He told another general before battle in uh, October of 1864, quote, if your men get their coffee early in the morning, you can hold. Meaning, <laughs> meaning if you can, if you can get them their coffee, if they can have their coffee in the morning, yeah, yeah you might, we might win this encounter. You're going to be all right. Hmm. It's going to be the decider. Uh, the Confederates, however, they weren't so lucky. Coffee shortages plagued them. One British observer stated that uh, it, quote, afflicts the Confederates even more than the loss of spirits uh, or alcohol. Uh, still, Union troops uh, sound a bit like caffeine junkies uh, in, uh, in Grinspan's uh, article, just rampaging across the landscape like something out of a Cormac McCarthy novel. Yeah. Uh, here's my favorite quote from the article, quote, Union troops made their coffee everywhere and with everything, with water from canteens and puddles, brackish bays and Mississippi mud, liquid their horses would not drink. They cooked it over fires of plundered fence rails or heated mugs and scalding steam vents on naval gunboats. When times were good, coffee accompanied beefsteaks and oysters. When they were bad, it washed down raw salt pork and maggoty hardtack. Coffee was often the last comfort troops enjoyed before entering battle and the first sign of safety for those who survived. I don't know about you, but like there's just something about uh, like a good paragraph like that about food. Even when <laughs> even the word maggoty hardtack, I kind of go, hmm, that sounds good. <laughs> well, you know, it's like like I said, even though most of us don't know what it's like to engage in life or death combat, yeah. we know what it's like to have a good cup of coffee, to have a bad cup of coffee. And uh, the, the 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 reason I ended up researching this was because I ran across this thing called um, the essence of coffee, okay. which was a horrible, by most accounts, horrible industrialized coffee product that came out during the Civil War oh. that was uh, essentially evaporated coffee, complete with milk and sugar. And everyone just described it as this thick brown sludge, as huh. obnoxious black grease, and the the Union troops just have. I'm just hated picturing it. like the worst Folgers ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah My grandmother, the way she drinks coffee, she takes Folgers out of the can, pours it like just 
dumps it into a cup, mm-hmm. adds water, and puts it in the microwave, and then drinks it black like that. Yeah. And she's 96 <laughs> years old. It's hard as nails. But maybe that's where she picked it up from. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, the, I think the use of coffee in the Civil War, like some of these anecdotes here, it, it does help to sort of drive home just how how much of a, a game changer having that coffee can be. Like no, yeah. Nobody's arguing that the coffee is the reason the Union uh, Army won. Right. Uh, yeah. But certainly they had access to coffee and that. And, and along with that, they had access to various other uh, uh, comforts and provisions that helped uh, help give them the overall advantage. Well, like you said, I mean, it's a uh, um, every little advantage helps. Right. Yeah. And like, again, like if we're going to keep using this uh, character sheet metaphor, it's like there's a plus one in some column every time you Mm -hmm. have a cup of coffee, whereas these Confederate soldiers, they weren't having coffee. So they had like maybe a negative two to dexterity. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. So this is something that I was wondering, let's get into the amphetamines use, which is incredibly prevalent today uh, and has actually been for, you know, a good while in the last century of warfare. Yeah. Um, But I kept thinking while I was reading, I was like, why don't they just, drink a lot of coffee. Uh, and you know, I'll, I haven't taken that many amphetamines, <laughs> but it, they are certainly far and above what you would get out of a pot Yeah. Of yeah. There, there's coffee and then there is, uh, and then there's meth and methamphetamine. Then yeah. there's stuff like Adderall where it's, um, it's a, it, if one is like a mild sharpening of the, the blade, the other is, uh, is, is a more intense, like razor uh, edge to it, I guess. Yeah. Like I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, why don't these pilots just get like a Keurig machine in their plane or something? <laughs> you know, they wouldn't have to have these, these strong side effects. And so that's actually what's been going on. The U.S. military has been making use of amphetamine since World War II. Um, pilots in the American military are taking speed, usually amphetamines, to enhance their performance. Military officials believe this is necessary to keep them alert. And focused, especially on long-range bombing missions. We talked about about those at the top. These are where they're flying for up to nine hours or more. And it, despite the potential side effects of hypertension, depression, and addiction, they still do it. Now, usually what they're taking is dexedrine. Uh, and it's part of a cycle where they take the speed for missions to fight fatigue. Then they take sedatives so they can get back to sleep. So they're referred to as go pills or no-go pills. And to clarify, these are legal in the military. Uh, the pilots are not required to take them, but, you know, uh, it helps on the missions. If they need them, they're available. No-go pills include Ambien, just to give you an idea of what they're taking. Some some of them are also hypnotics, from what I understand. Well, Ambien is, can certainly have mildly hypnotic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... The article that I looked at that gave me a lot of information on this was from Aviation, Space, and Environmental Medicine. It was published in 2010, and it's called Fatigue and Stimulant Use in Military Fighter Aircrew During Combat Operations. So the authors, their concern was that most of the studies that looked at stimulant use in soldiers were looking at sleep-deprived military aviation that they were in situations that were totally under control, right? It was just um, based on lab conditions, essentially. Uh, so they were wondering, well, what happens when you're in combat? What happens when you throw variables at these pilots? So they asked 29 F-1 5E aircrew participants to fill out a survey after their active combat operations. And it was about their drug use, their fatigue, the physical symptoms that they had, and so on. 
And they found that stimulants were used 35% of the time. So not as much as we would think, but, you know, it's there. Uh, in, on average, they were taken about three hours after takeoff. They concluded that the drugs decreased fatigue without significant post-flight symptoms. I just want to pause and take a second. Like when I was reading this article, it didn't really seem to adequately address the variables that they were concerned with about mm-hmm. combat. And they themselves said at the end of the article, look, we understand there's limitations to this. There needs to be more research done. Um, nor does self-reporting seem like the ideal way to get to the bottom of, of, you know, how the use is done, uh, and, and what its effects are. Yeah. Uh, and whether or not they're, they have negative post-flight symptoms. Another measure that came out of this, we hadn't really heard of yet, uh, in between missions, these hypnotic medications I referred to, those are being used to induce and improve sleep. They also found that the reason that pilots were using the stimulants were because their circadian rhythm was broken, like maybe they had been woken up in the middle of the night or mm-hmm. something like that, or they were on long flights like we described earlier, or... They were trying to get off of the effects of the pre-flight hypnotic meds that they'd taken. So these guys might have taken Ambien or something like that, uh, been woken up, mm-hmm. and then it was like, oh, we need you to fly and do a mission right now. Yeah. And so they take Dexedrine immediately afterwards huh. to try to counteract the effects of the hypnotic medications. So as you might imagine, this isn't without controversy. Despite being practiced for decades, in 2002, there was an incident, a lot of you may have heard of this, two Air National Guard pilots bombed and killed four Canadian soldiers by accident. And the speculation was was that they had taken Dexedrine huh. and it had impaired their judgment. Likewise, an Air Force investigation in 2013 found that there was a crash that killed four special operators and that that might have been caused by the pilot using Ambien. So there's some concern about this, whether incidents like that will repeat themselves. And then again, you know, addiction, you know, like once these guys are done, what what is this doing to their sleep cycle, to, to their personalities, et cetera? Yeah, it's kind of like a, like the the, the no go and go pills, the back and forth. It's yeah. all, adding hot water because the bath's too uh, cold, and then adding cold because it's too hot. You know, you run the risk of overflowing the bath at some point. Totally. So here's the big problem, though: stimulants actually strengthen learning and memory formation. This works the same way when we form long-lasting memories from our strong emotional experiences. So this is the big problem. These stimulants could be increasing the risk of soldiers getting PTSD because they're pathologically forming memories while the drugs are in their system of horrible scenarios. Um, So just to recap, because we've talked about this a lot on the show, stimulants release neuroepinephrine in our brains, potentially enhancing our emotional memory and research into this. Do you remember on our creepy pasta episode that we did two weeks ago about the SCP? We talked a lot about chemicals and memories. Well, there's lots of ways chemicals can form or erase memories. More neuroepinephrine enhances our memory. But if you add propranolol in, you can block that impairing emotional memory. Uh, remember, we talked about rats in that episode mm-hmm. uh, when you tested them. Uh, and you'd give them propranolol, they would forget about electric traps in a maze and get electrocuted all over again. So all of this leads us to the drugs that are used to help soldiers with PTSD. But also keep in mind, some of these drugs might be contributing to PTSD. Hmm. 
So let's take a quick break. And when we get back, let's really get into the um, chemistry that's being used to treat PTSD. Hi, I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we're the co-hosts of Stuff You Missed in History Class. We are a history podcast that tries to look at the things that maybe were overlooked in your history classes, maybe not covered in as much detail, or frankly, maybe covered in a way that was not accurate. New episodes come out every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else that podcasts can be listened to. All right, we're back. So uh, we, we already mentioned some of the the more like near future forms of PTSD treatment. But in terms of actual medications that are used right now to aid the treatment of PTSD, basically everything can be divided into three categories. So first of all, antidepressants. Now, these are, of course, medications that help symptoms of depression and anxiety. And they can also help improve sleep problems and concentration. Um, so we're talking about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRI medications, and the big ones here are Zoloft and Paxil. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there are more dedicated anti-anxiety medications, and these are drugs that can improve feelings of anxiety and stress for a short time to relieve severe anxiety and related problems. And uh, b- because these medications have uh, the potential for abuse, they're not usually taking long term. And so there are a whole host of, uh, of anti-anxiety medications mm-hmm. uh, that fall under that category. And then uh, an- another uh, frequently used uh, medication is a drug called uh, Prazosin, or mini press, uh, and this is uh, if if symptoms include insomnia or recurrent nightmares, uh, this can potentially help. Although it's not speci- specifically FDA approved for PTSD treatment, um, it may reduce or suppress uh, nightmares in many people with PTSD. Yeah, and we have talked about, like I said, you know, we've had a couple episodes where we. This is one of those topics that stuff to blow your mind. I think circles around again mm-hmm. over and over. Uh, we are interested in it, but it's also connected to a lot of different themes and topics that right. we're interested in. Um, so one thing that's come up is beta blockers. They block the effects of neuroepinephrine. That's the propranolol I was talking about earlier. They basically stop fear conditioning. Uh, in 2002, a psychiatrist named Roger Pittman, he was from Harvard Medical School, and he led a study where they randomly assigned emergency room patients either with a beta blocker like propranolol or with a, a placebo. And this was within six hours of experiencing a traumatic event. After a month, they went back to these subjects and they said, those of you that took the beta blockers, what's going on? They gave them a survey, questionnaire, interviews. Uh, these people felt significantly fewer symptoms of PTSD based on their emergency room event than the subjects who had not. So... And, and, you know, go back and listen to that SCP episode. The, there's been lots of research into beta blockers and memory. Uh, we also have done an episode, as I referred to earlier, on MDMA. See, see that for a real deep dive. But MDMA trials have been used to help survivors by increasing their trust and decreasing their fear in therapy. There is 
a lot of other options. Like you mentioned, you guys talked about Tetris on another episode. Yeah, and uh, and I, I encourage uh, people to go back and listen to that episode if you want more. But like the basic idea is interrupting the formation and the hard coding of traumatic memories. Yeah, like the the simple version would be something traumatic happens, play Tetris because because uh, Tetris is uh, an example of a game, an excellent example of a game that has an ability to uh, to interfere with uh, the, the formation of those uh, traumatic memories. Yeah. Okay. So then the big question then is, are there drugs, and you, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but are there drugs that make killing easier? Hmm. Sort of the opposite of this PTSD thing. We've, we've talked about some historical examples through this episode, mm-hmm. but yeah, I wonder if it's something that's currently being developed, especially when I think about that Black Mirror episode. Because we've already established that, like, like fixing the, the soldier, addressing the the um, the mental health concerns yeah. that occur after engaging in in this kind of combat. Like those are costly. Those uh, not only in terms of dollars, but in lives. Like yeah. these, this is it's a major issue. Uh, you get into weird ethical waters, to say the least, when you start saying, "Well, what if we fixed it on the other end? What if we just made him more okay with killing?" Right. But then, what are the what are the long? I mean, the, the long term effects there are potentially even more monstrous. Yeah, I it, it it does seem horrific to me, and I just I can't imagine it. <laughs> it's funny. So for this episode, I watched that Black Mirror episode that mm-hmm. we keep referring to, and now I can't think of it except for outside of. Um, well, I tell you, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and enter. We can enter into a spoiler zone for that episode. If you if you haven't seen it, uh, and and when wish to see it, go see it, and then come back and check out the end of this episode. Uh, but for the rest of you, we'll go ahead and press on without uh, without fear of spoilers for Men Against Fire. Yeah. So this episode is called Men Against Fire, uh, and the essential premise is that they have. Uh, what would you call it? Like a like an implant, a brain implant? Yeah, I think that there are a few key technologies that are going on there. Some sort of a brain implant, um, a, a a a a contact lens that alters yeah. their visual perception, and then there's also dream management uh, software, right. dream intervention uh, software that's part of it that's controlling their dreams, pushing down traumatic uh, nightmares, and even rewarding them with uh, with particularly pleasant sexual dreams. Yeah. And so all of this is revealed masterfully over the course of the episode, very slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ultimate reveal is that you think that these soldiers have been fighting like they, they call them roaches. You think uh-huh. they've been fighting like, I don't know, vampires. Yeah, you or think they're, they're mutants at first because there's a yeah. there's a eugenics vibe going on. That they're, yeah. The enemy is genetically inferior and fighting them is, is important for the future. Uh, and it, and you see these monsters, you see like a firefight and they're, mm-hmm. uh, they fight these monsters. And then, uh, essentially throughout the course of the episode, one of the soldiers implant stops working mm-hmm. and he sees that they're actually just people, right. but the implants are uh, making it so that he and the other soldiers see them. They literally demonize the opposition right. so that it's easier to kill them. And it, it, uh, influences their sensory systems too, like so that they're not smelling blood or they're not hearing the screams of the people they're killing. Right. Um, it's all this to the end of subsequently making it easier for them to, to kill the enemy. Yeah. And now I, now as a good black mirror episode does, I can't help but think about this idea in those terms, a hard time thinking about like a medication or chemistry. I didn't really find a whole lot 
that that would actually do this. The U.S. Special Operations does have a memo that I read about outlines technology objectives that look to what are they say, quote, ergogenic substances to manage environmentally and mentally induced stress. Um, so they're basically looking at this as a way to in, uh, manage stress in the battlefield rather than after mm-hmm. the battle. So I guess that would be somewhat similar, but I think this is like a whole nother level. Yeah, I think that what we see in the episode kind of represents the, the long-term fear, that anxiety about like tinkering with these things. Because right. for those soldiers, not only are they they tinkering with their perceptions of the battle and of, of war and of violence and of killing in war. They're also tinkering with their reward system. Like the, the, the final scene in the episode is him returning home right. and he doesn't see his home for this ruined shell that it is. And he, and in, and in fact, he sees the woman of his dream on the porch waiting for yeah. him. And there's actually nobody there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's what we, when you start war is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's part of, human history and human culture it's impossible to separate war from who we are in many respects and yet as we've already established like war is not a natural thing for us it is a traumatic Mm -hmm. uh, experience it's a it's a a horrifying thing and if we start trying to change who we are for war uh you know what are the end results what are the right ramifications there yeah it is it obviously like even beyond what we talked about earlier with the ethical implications related to the side effects of all of these different medications and narcotics and drugs for soldier use in battle. This one, most of all, seems to have a real philosophical like question mark over it, which yeah. is just kind of like, should we even do this? Like, yeah. is it moral? Um think we covered Black Mirror? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. All right. So if you want to come back in, <laughs> we're no longer going to talk about Black Mirror. Let's close out. And I just want to say that based on the above of everything that we've talked about this episode, some have proposed that there should be four ethical criteria for the use of drugs in the military. Okay. And, and, and these are the criteria uh, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe these would work. Maybe they wouldn't. The the first one would be that the use must be voluntary, and that seems to be the case uh, with dexedrine, right? Like That's, they choose to use it. That sounds like a good idea. At the same time, though, I mean, you have situations where uh, still where individuals can still be drafted into militaries. Yeah. Uh, so if there's, if there's a possibility for a draft, it seems kind of ridiculous for, like, you get into whole questions about, well, why, why do I, I have a choice in this manner, but I don't have a choice oh, yeah. in serving in the military to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a, that's a whole can of worms unto itself. Uh, the second criteria would be that the medication must be safe. Okay. Uh, third is that it, its use must be in accord with medical standards. Mm-hmm. So those two are kind of connected. And the, the, the fourth is that alternative measures must be utilized first. So I guess in the example of dexedrine, uh, it's kind of like what I was joking about earlier. Like, uh, how many cups of coffee can these guys have on a nine hour flight before they're, they, you know, it, it no longer works as an alternative. They've mm-hmm. got to take dexedrine or else they're going to, you know, bomb the wrong location or something. Um, so I would just bring this back to what we talked about at the beginning. Remember that soldiers aren't machines. And uh, the ideal here is that they will, will want to return to civilian life. So maybe there should be some kind of ethical principles in play 
regarding whether it's dietary supplements or or drugs or even, you know, if we jump into the sci-fi scenario of uh, some technological implants or something, yeah. what the long-term effects of that are going to be. Yeah, and I think in general, like just in, in – and this is me speaking, but um, as far as military uh, use in general, I, I, I love that fourth – uh, ethical criteria, alternative measures must be utilized first. And I think the, the, the more we explore that, the, the better off we'll be. Yeah. Well, I mean, given how much money the Department of Defense is spending on this, I would imagine they're exploring every avenue that's mm-hmm. available. So we'll see. We'll see how this evolves in the future. Uh, I'm curious though, uh, you, our audience, I know a lot of you out there have experience with PTSD or uh, family members who have um, uh, gone to war, come back from war. I, so what's your take on all of this? Like the, the better living through chemistry for a warrior. Yeah. How, how, how should we approach that going forward in the future? Uh, well, you can let us know. First of all, visit us on stuff to blow your You're going to find all our social media channels there. Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, those are all great ways to get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. You can also find all the stuff that we put out on a regular basis, podcasts, videos, articles, you name it. Those are all on stuff to blow your yeah, and if you um, want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, if you just want to send us an email, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 